0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com.
1: Amen. Well, good to see you again this morning, church. Hope you're doing well. If you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We continue in our DNA series. We're looking at the mission, vision, and values of Northway Church. We're on our eighth value, and it's gonna be that value of Generations. The idea that as Northway Church, we proclaim the gospel to the next generation. And so out of Psalm 78 today, I really want to lay a foundation and, and, and make a passionate plea that Northway Church always be a church that is committed to reaching the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this value this week out of Psalm 78 Um, you know, I've been asked already, not only here, but even other churches have been a part of, that have kind of the same demographic that we've had historically here and go, why why would you need to preach a message about reaching the next generation to a church that for the better part of the last 10 years here has had an average age in the mid to late 20s with 50% being single? Like, isn't that kind of preaching to the choir? Isn't this church already reaching the next generation? And where many churches all around us are constantly asking, man, how do you get so so many young people to come to your church? Like, isn't that already kind of beating the drum that's already been here? And I would simply say this, in response to that, uh, you need to look no further than an example of what we saw in the 2008 Summer Olympics. 2008 Summer Olympics, we had built arguably two of the greatest four x 100 relay teams up to that point. All with the hopes, especially on the men's side, of beating Jamaica and Usain Bolt, who's coming on the scene. And in 2008, we had put together a men's four x 100 relay team, a women's four by 100 relay team. Each had spent four years, longer even, of training, building the perfect team to get ready for this moment, And then they enter into their races. Does anybody remember the 2008 Olympics, what happened to both those teams? Both of them dropped the baton and were disqualified before we even had a chance to compete. Four years of building two of the strongest teams, both the men and the women. And then that moment when each of them couldn't make the proper handoff, to even have a chance to run that race. And so no, I I would simply say, even the strongest generation is always just one botched handoff away from not reaching the next generation to come. So I don't care how great we've been in this generation of grabbing folks, if we are not a church that is prepared to make the necessary handoffs to the generation coming up, we're no different than the four by 100 relay teams that we saw in 2008. And so Psalm 78 is one of these Psalms that's gonna speak to the importance of one generation being able to make the right kind of handoff to the next. Because I'll just tell you this right up front. I don't care that we have 14, 1500 Majority millennials attending on Sundays at this church. Uh, It's not just that you have 1400 attending. My question is 1400 what? And 1400 in attendance doesn't always translate to 1400 that are making disciples. And Psalm 78 is gonna put a shot across the bow for us, a sober reminder of our role is not just to be a hoarder of God's gospel in this generation, but a multiplier of God's gospel to the generations that will come long after we're gone. And so Psalm 78, if you notice, is written by a man named Asaph. There's a couple different Asaphs in your Bible. We're pretty confident that this is the one that was one of David's chief musicians, King David's chief musicians, who also had sons that were musicians as well and have written a significant portion of Psalms. Twelve Psalms in your Bible are ascribed to Asaph, And this particular song is labeled, you see it in your inscription at the top, a maskil. There's lots of different types of psalms. There's psalms of lament, there's psalms of praise, there's different kinds of psalms, royal psalms. This one is a genre of psalm known as a maskil. A maskil was something that was used to educate or teach somebody on something that had been forsaken. And so this is a teaching psalm. And we see the thrust of what it was Asaph was wanting to teach, to educate on. And you see that jump down to verses five through eight. Listen to these words. He, that is God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so three things I want you to notice in those verses that we just read. There's an understanding, number one, of what God did. The second thing is what God commanded. And the third thing is why is it so important? What God did, what God commands, and why it's so important. Look at these again. What did God do? We see this at the beginning of verse five. He established a testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel. This is a reference to the Exodus. And and here's what we need to know. When sin and death entered into the world in Genesis 3, God made a promise that one day he would restore what sin had broken. One day God himself would redeem. he He would rescue his people from the bondage that sin had enslaved them to and bring them back once again into relationship with him. And so what you see following Genesis three is page after page in your Bible, page after page in your old Testament of God slowly unveiling his plan of how he's going to redeem his people, how he's going to rescue them. And every event Every leader that's raised up, every generation, every miracle that occurs in your Old Testament is God giving his people a foretaste of the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate deliverance that would one day come in Jesus Christ. But it's in the Exodus, it's in the Exodus where God decides to speak in such a profound way that would leave a lasting imprint upon his people of who he is and how he delivers, that they would never forget who he is and what he's done. And that is what verse five is referring to. It's the testimony, the story of what God did in Egypt. You remember, God's people were enslaved to the Egyptians, longing for deliverance. God promises deliverance. Again, it's a, the exodus is going to be a foretaste of a greater deliverance, but they're longing for deliverance. And so God sends 10 plagues upon Pharaoh and his court and all the land. He uses Moses to this insignificant, unlikely leader to, to lead these people out. And then God does one of the most significant event, events recorded in your entire Old Testament is when he parts the Red Sea, this miraculous deliverance and leads his people out. And then the sea closes in on their enemies, freeing them now And in doing so, what God did in this miraculous event is He establishes a testimony to His amazing power and His authority and might to redeem. And then immediately following the Exodus, if you remember what God does, so bring Moses up onto a mountaintop. And there He will give Moses and thus all the people His law, His commandments that are both a reflection of God's perfect holiness and they are also the expectation of the relational holiness that his people have been now saved and liberated to walk in with him and God does all of this again to establish a story that the people will never forget that Yahweh is not just a covenant-making God, he's a covenant-keeping God who loves his people, has not forsaken his people, and has come to deliver them in a way that they could not deliver themselves and to bring them once again into fellowship with himself and his holy presence. But the question is, if this is what God has done by establishing this testimony and this law, if your God... What is your plan to ensure that this testimony, this law, doesn't just die out in this generation that experienced it, but will be continued to be known and experienced in all the generations that will come, all the way up to those of us sitting in this room? If you're God, how do you ensure that this story continues amongst your people? And that's where you see the second thing that God does here, of what God commands at the end of verse five which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children. God's aim was that the next generation would not forsake his law and his testimony. And his answer for that happening is that he was going to have the older generation who had walked with him, who knew him, be able to teach the younger generation what that was like. In this context, the parents to teach the children. And so on and so on from generation to generation. And what Asaph is recounting here, what he's recalling, is one of the foremost commands in all of the Old Testament, which was Deuteronomy 6, known as the Shema, which means to hear. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, Shema, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's establishing who God is. And now he establishes the relationship that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. How? Verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's covering the totality of discipleship in a day. When you get up in the morning, the knowledge of God should be there. When you lay down at night, the knowledge of God should be there. When you're sitting leisurely in your home, it's a teaching opportunity for, the, for who God is and what he's done. And when you're active and on the go, there are opportunities to point to your kids and tell them what God has done and who he is. The whole totality of your day and these words, these understanding of who God is, he says in verse eight, you shall bind them, hold fast to them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and you shall put them on the gates. These are all metaphors of the knowledge of who God is and what he has done should be in what you do in the work of your hands. It should be in how you think, as frontlets on your forehead. It should be over the doorposts of your home, the entrance into the private spheres of your life, as well as on the gates. The city gates were the public entrance in the public arena. And so it's your private life and your public life. It's every facet of your day and every facet of who you are should be the knowledge of God of who he is and what he has done being proclaimed to your children and the next generation. Why? Why is it so important that they they should do this? Look at this, notice this in verse 10. So that when, not if, but when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, that when you eat and you're full, meaning when you inherit the promise of God that he he swore to your fathers to give to you, And you're receiving all these blessings of the good news of the gospel of God. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. This is God giving this word to give to Moses, to give to the fathers, to give to the older generation right after they had been liberated of this is my command to you that you will proclaim my might to the next generation so that one day when you're gone and they're in the land, they won't forget how this happened. All of this is one generation telling the next about the mighty wondrous works of God. So the the third question, if this is what God has, has done and if this is what God has now commanded, the third is the implication, why again is this so important? And you see this in detail in verses six through eight. Listen to this. Three reasons he lists there in verse six and following. Number one, so the next generation might know. There has to be a knowledge that is imparted about God from one generation to the next. There has to be a biblical literacy, an education, about who God is and what he is up to and what he has done and what he's going to do. Somebody has got to sit down with the next generation and teach them about God through the scriptures, opening up the word of God and the promise of God and teach the next generation about this God. That would look like in that day, the parents sitting down with their children and reciting the oral narrative that had been passed down to them about God in creation of why he made the heavens and the earth to begin with and how the fall corrupted it and what sin looks like. And then the promises of God to restore and to redeem and seeing those played out in the flood account and in the exodus account. That's what a parent was doing of educating the next generation so they would know. But notice, it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not just intellectual assent. Secondly, in verse 7, it's that they should set their hope in God. In other words, the reason the next generation is to be biblically literate about the knowledge of God and his great works is so that those stories, once they've memorized them, they've learned them, would make their way into their hearts and realize that this God is worthy of their affection and of their trust That their God is not just a a promise maker. Their God is a promise keeper. So they might place their full hope in him and not in lesser things. And so there has to be a past knowledge and a future hope that leads to a future hope. But also, thirdly, notice the present obedience in verse 7. That they would keep his commandments. In other words, go teach the next generation about God so that they won't have to fall in the same snares that the earlier generation had fallen into in their rebellion and idolatry out of mistrust over who God is. You know, I wonder how many of you in this room who are, let's just take 40s and up, who've lived a little life now, how many of you in this room would look back on your life when you were in your teens and your 20s or even your early 30s and identify with the old adage, man, if only I knew then what I knew now about God. How much pain that could have saved me, how much rebellion that could have saved me. Well, guess what? You and I have the unspeakable privilege of getting to help the next generation behind us avoid paying the same dumb tax that we paid early on by pointing them to God's word and help each of them to learn At an early age, what it means to to know God, to hope in God, and to walk with God. Asaph says this is what was meant to happen. God has established his testimony. He has established his word. And it is each generation's privilege to be able to ensure that the next generation gets it. So the question is, how did Israel do? If this was the command from the very beginning, how did Israel do? Well, I want you to notice Asaph gives us a summary of how Israel did in verses 9 through 72. See all that? We're going to take the next two hours. We're going to go <laughs> verse by verse. Totally kidding. Summarize it. I want you to notice verse 1 and 2. Listen to how this psalm begins. Asaph says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching incline your ears to the words of my mouth i will open my mouth in a parable i will utter dark sayings from old now this is interesting he says i want to i want to give you a parable psalm 78 is a parable where's the parable the parable is actually verses 9 through 72 That's the parable. But it's interesting, when you think about what a parable is, as Jesus taught parables, we usually think of this hypothetical story that, you know, this made-up story that conveys a a biblical truth. But yet, if you survey 9 through 72, that's not some made-up story, that's history. That's factual history that's right there. What you have in verses 9 through 72 is a summary of some of the major events in Israel's history from the Exodus to the time of King David when Asaph was writing. About four to 500 years worth of history is in verse nine through 72. And in doing so, as you, if you survey this, you'll notice a pattern begins to evolve that fits this parable. In verses 12 through 16, Asaph describes the amazing work that God did to rescue his people out of bondage in Egypt. But notice verse 17. Yet they sin still the more against God, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. And verses 23 to 29 talks about how God provided food and drink for his people in the wilderness when they're in the desert, satisfying their needs. And yet, look at verse 32. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. And then in verse 38 and following, we talk talks about how God spared their lives over and over again from their enemies and from their foe. And yet in verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from their enemy. And then verse 43 to 55, he recounts again all that God did in Egypt to serve justice on their enemies. And yet in verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the most high god and did not keep his commandments. And so the psalm goes on and on all the way to the time of David. And then the psalm just ends. Cryptically ends, kind of like Jonah. You're like, that's it. But but again, remember this is a parable. What is the parable? What's the riddle that Asaph's getting at? Here's the story of this god who has demonstrated amazing power towards his people. Pouring out an unlimited amount of mercy and grace upon them, being consistently faithful to them, even when they weren't faithful to him, and, and constantly delivering them over and over, and yet these people habitually and continually forget. Why? Why is this here? I think what Asaph's trying to show us is that as good as God's people were at receiving God's gospel, where they failed was in their baton handoff to the next generation that was coming after them so that there would arise another generation that did not know the Lord. Like They they hoarded the blessings for themselves but did not ensure that the next generation received it. And so you gotta ask yourself, why this Psalm for us in this value? My hope and my prayer is that Northway Church, this would not be our narrative. That the embracement and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have received would not end on our watch. Rather, we would be like Asaph in his day and what he proclaimed. Look at this in verse three and four. This is, what, this is the point of this psalm. This is what Asaph says. The things that we have heard and we have known that our fathers have told us we will not hide them from their children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And likewise, we would not just be a church that makes a splash in our day, but we would be a church that leaves gospel ripples long after we're gone. That those coming after us would be handed a baton, a gospel baton that lets them know who our God is, what his grace has done for us. That they too might put their hope in Jesus Christ and walk with him just as we've gotten to taste. That's the point of Psalm 78. That's the thrust for us. That's the foundation that I want to lay here this morning is that we would be a people who make it our life's work to make sure the next generation coming after us, not just the one with us, but the one after us knows and embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question now is, what does this mean for Northway Church? If this is the value that Psalm 78 is speaking to, how do we embrace this as a church? And so to do that, I want to do something a little bit different here on the back end, a little bit more practical. I want to invite up a couple of friends, Ms. Cassie Bryant and Matt Younger. Come on up here. We're going to change real quick behind me to a bit of a living room set. This is going to be a little bit different, not normative. And no, we're not going off the deep end in terms of seeker sensitive church right here and doing skits. This isn't going to happen, but we're going to create a little bit of living room right now so that we can work this out a little bit. What does the value of proclaiming the gospel to the next generation, how does it play itself out here at Northway Church in a way that speaks to the three primary groups that are with us? This, is, this isn't just about parenting, though it is, and we've got a lot of parents in this church that are overwhelmed right now and go, i gonna help me do this, how do I do this? But we've also got a lot of singles on the front end going, okay, so I'm not even there yet, what does this mean for me? Is this a message that's not for me? No, this is absolutely for you if you're single. And then those on the other side, the empty nesters among us, the gray hairs and no hairs among us, they're thinking, man, where's my place? I don't even see anybody like me at this church. (laughs) You know, what's my role in this? And so we want to speak to all of those, but I want to do so through the lens of three primary threats. Israel had threats in their day that would become inhibitions for why they would not proclaim the gospel. We have threats in our day. Three particular threats we want to look at here this morning. One is going to be that of inadequacy, of going, man, I don't even know where to start. I, this thing seems so much bigger than me. I don't know what my lane is or, or what my role in reaching the next generation is. I feel totally inadequate to do that. Help me out. We're going to speak to that. The second is going to be that of indifference, of those who are going, man, why does this even matter? Man, I'm a single now, I don't even near. Why, why do I need to be thinking about this? Or you know what? I've already, I've already paid that one. I'm done. I'm moved on. I'm ready to go hit the, hit the golf course in Florida for the rest of my life and check out. Like What, what does this mean for me right now? And then the third threat is going to be that of isolation, which I think is a big one in the city of Dallas, and it's a big one in this church. When you begin to feel all alone and feel like this thing's fragmented, and I'm not even sure how we're acting like a family right now. What are, the, how do they, what are these threats? And then what are the next steps that we need to be taking as Northway Church to counter these so that we'll proclaim the gospel to the next generation? We've got Cassie Bryant here with us. Cassie is our children's minister, faithful children's minister for many, many years at this place. And, uh, and then we've got Matt Younger, who's one of our elders and also our pastor of ministry overseas, kind of pretty much everything, cradle to the grave. No pressure there. Um, we got that. So we want to talk about those three threats. And what this needs to look like here at Northway Church, both actual and aspirational, what are we praying for and where are we heading towards? The first one, though, is that of inadequacy. Speak for a moment to those who may be feeling like, man, I hear the value in Psalm 78. I know I'm supposed to be thinking about the next generation, but I don't even know where to begin. I don't even feel like I know where to start. I don't think I can do this, whether it's singles, parents, or the gray hairs among us who are like, man, I don't know what my role is right now. Talk about that, what that can look like here at Northway Church.
2: Well, I'd like to offer an encouragement first, and that is that it's hard. <laughs> and that's an encouragement because it's supposed to be hard. I think um, it's a it's a challenging thing to pass on to the next generation, the works of God. And we have a lot of things working against us as parents and as singles and as a church. But um, I guess all that to say, I think we need to lean into our inadequacy and be humbled that we can't do it on our own. And there's nothing that God's called us to do that He won't equip us to do by the Holy Spirit. And so um, if you're in a season of life where it feels impossible, if you're a mom or a dad and you don't know how to do this in your home, if you are single, like we want to help you and come alongside you. Um, Myself and my staff and Ian, who's over students, we— see it as our job to equip parents as primary disciple makers and equip those in our church who want to serve and come alongside us in equipping the next generation. And so we don't want you to be doing it, uh, feeling that inadequacy. We want to be giving you resources. We live in a day and age where resources are abundant. We have some great um, resources. Here at Northway, we have like a discipleship uh, model For families, uh, it's called Time Moments Milestones. And so we are just looking at what it means to spend intentional time, uh, discipling your kids, what it looks like to leverage moments throughout your day, like when they're fighting or uh, when you're in the car or whatever, the like leveraging those moments to uh, disciple your kids. And then what it looks like to uh, mark and make milestones that you can look back on kind of as Ebenezer's, and see God's faithfulness um, for your kids. And so that's a resource we'll include. Uh, it lives online right now uh, that we can include in the email this week. And then we also recommend, like, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've got young kids, uh, and if you don't have that, that is, like, such a great and easy thing to be doing with your kids to help them see the big picture of the Bible, the big story. And I can guarantee you that as an adult, even if you don't have kids, buy the book. It's so good. I think Matt cried through every chapter of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but it's hard. But you're, you don't have to do it without... Um, without the help, like he's not gonna call you to do it yeah. without help.
0: No, that's great. I think just to add to that, I mean, so my wife and I have three kids. We have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old, uh, and after our two-year-old, we discerned that we had a full quiver. Uh, and so if you don't know what that means, ask me later. But um, you know, our two-year-old is, it's Murphy's Law, right? So if we go to your house, I'm immediately looking for the most expensive thing in your house because that's, that's what he's trying to destroy. So there's no neutral point here, okay? This is chaos. This is discipleship amidst chaos. Um, My children, don't say, Father, shall we read Obadiah for dinner tonight? That that just never, (laughs) ever, ever, ever happens. Um, But I tell you, I think the things that that get me on this are Paul in 2 Corinthians asked this question, and he, he asked this, he says, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer to that question is nobody and everybody who God empowers, and he actually empowers us to disciple the next generation, which is really, really good news. And then I think the other thing that gets me is just um, discipleship is not a future-oriented day for you to turn something on. Discipleship is now because you are discipling now. You are showing your children and those around you what you love, what you value, your life's liturgy, how you pattern your days, and they are picking up on that right now. Uh, either towards wisdom or towards foolishness. And um, just to say one more thing about resources, I think resources is actually, I think the people that we have and the resources that we point to are very strong. I think that's actually an asset that we have where if you have a question, we can point you to a person or a book or a talk that really gives a Faithful uh, explanation and some wisdom towards next steps, and uh, obviously do that together as a family as well. I think I learn some of my best stuff from you guys as we try to do this together. So
2: I think too, we're trying to say that don't let fear of not getting it right keep you from doing it at all. Yeah. So the inadequacy it will paralyze you, and I've found, I've done. I mean, I've that's in my own life. Like um, so, don't don't let that happen. Um.
1: So we see inadequacy as one potential threat that we just sit on the sidelines because we feel completely inadequate, but yet the scriptures, and and I think the value shows this starts in the home. There's clearly from scripture discipleship has to start in the home and God is sufficient to resource and equip parents through the Holy Spirit, through his word. And then in addition, as a church, we've got additional resources that can help. It's not a pathway issue. Again, we've got issues that, that those disciple makers can take advantage of. And we're going to put those in our church email update. If you're not on that email update, jump on our website, sign up, and you'll get those resources this week. But that speaks to a lot of the inadequacy piece. But I'm thinking about the second threat that moves beyond just parents in the room. But I'm thinking of our singles in here. I'm thinking of our, maybe our senior adults, maybe post-parenting years, so to speak where the threat of indifference can come on. We just go, well, what does this have to do with me? And, and what, what's the role of not just the primary influencers, which is parents, speak about the role of the secondary influencers when it comes to discipling the next generation, especially with the threat of indifference.
2: Yeah, so as a parent, I try to be really strategic about hoarding secondary influencers. <laughs> So if you love Jesus and want to come hang out with my kids, please, because I need you to tell them what I'm telling them, because they're going to hear it from my single friends and uh, their, like even the babysitters that we use, like everyone that we can get around them that will share the good news of the gospel and point to him as creator and as heavenly father. That's The more of that, the better because as a parent, I know my influence is forever. The impact I will make on my life will be eternal for them and whether that's for the good or the bad, but I also know that the secondary influence, my life was shaped by secondary influences and Matt will share some of that for him, but um, I wanna put people in their lives that know that their influence can be forever. Does that make sense? So like, as a single in this room, you can have an eternal impact on the next generation before you're even a parent. As a parent in the room, you will have an eternal impact on your kids.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think it it goes forwards and backwards. And what I mean by that is in late 2009, I was just uh, kind of minding my own business and my wife told me we were pregnant. Uh, and from that day to right now, feels like a really long weekend, okay? So uh, for a lot of you guys, this is ahead of you. For all of us, it's ahead of us. But as parents, yeah. um, like it's, it's not, it's, it's right around the corner um, for a number of us. And then looking backwards, for those of us who don't yet have families, nuclear families and children, um, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know what your future looks like, but if you're a 25-year-old single in here, here's what I'm, I'm confident in—pretty confident—that at one point you were 10 years old. I'm pretty sure you were 10, and then at one point you were 15. Uh, and Lord willing, you learned something about being 10 and being 15. And you—and—and and, um, I got emotional during the nine saying this that. Uh, I think for for all of us, um, the primary influence in my conversion to Christ in my early discipleship was not actually a primary influence. Uh, As much as I love my mom and dad, they were secondary influences. They were not blood-related people who led me to Christ and poured their lives into me. And uh, you really can be somebody's spiritual hero. My daughter loves Katie Thompson, Logan Thompson's wife, and... Um, and they're reading, Caroline's reading Harry Potter right now and just loves to tell Katie about it. And, and and I'm just like, you just go, there's this really And Katie's in her late, mid to late twenties, mid early, I don't know how old she is, mid twenties, um,
2: (laughs) younger than us, younger
0: than us. And, and she's this like really, she's just this, 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 just like Cassie was saying, like calling, you know, the friends aunts. It's just, she has so much influence with, uh, with my sweet little, my sweet little girl. So, um. Anyway, yeah, there's some real opportunities ahead for us. You know, and
1: I may add to that, because that's so good, Matt. I mean, there's, there's the secondary influencers and in so many of the singles. I could say the same thing. I could talk about all the secondary and even tertiary heroes of my daughters right now. I, I love that my wife and I get to disciple our daughters, but even more so, I'm longing for that third hero to come alongside. And God has been so gracious in this church to provide other young women who are coming alongside my daughters and discipling them right now. And it's been beautiful. But I would also go to the other side of that and go, we have got some wisdom in this room. Some, some of our senior adults, or some, of our, some of our empty nesters that are in here who may be on the other side of that spectrum, man going, so what's in, the, what's in this for me and what's my role? And I, I hear from a lot of folks at one great family in this church that just came to me one day and as an older couple and just said, listen, we're, we're an empty nest season. And there's just no PLUs in this church. I'm like, what's a PLU? And they're like, people like us, there's nobody like us here. We're the the minority here. And I'm like, Oh, but we need you. And, And I need to just say our country spends billions of dollars trying to convince our, our gray hairs amongst us that your life is done. And that is just a lie from the pit of hell. They, want, they literally want to make you believe that your best days now are moving to Florida and playing golf the rest of your days. Don't make me go John Piper here and collecting seashells because they're going to do that as well. <laughs> but I'm talking about this is that this is the season right now to double down more than ever before. It's not just the young kids that need the discipling. We've got 20 year olds and 30 year olds, can I get an amen in here, that need some influencing and mentoring as well. We've got young families who need coaching, who need direction, and you get to enter into the game, not sit on the sidelines, and we need you more than ever. So I would tell you, please jump in and go get your friends, bring them to Northway. We long to see more gray hairs around here who can enter in, and that's why for our call to worship at the beginning, we read from Psalm 71. If you want some good homework that parallels with Psalm 78, go read Psalm 71. Written by an older man who's at the end of his life, he's weary, he's tired, and if there is ever a need or a message for him to move off to retirement and go just play the rest of his life away, it was him. But yet he says these words in Psalm 71, 18. So even to my old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Don't take me out of the game yet, Lord, until I proclaim your might to another generation. And so, oh yes, we need everybody in this. Singles, parents, and those who are empty nest and beyond. We need everybody into this game. Your, your influence matters. Now, on top of that, though, there is a third, third threat. So we looked at inadequacy, maybe even that of indifference, but that of isolation. And I think this is a big deal, especially being here in Dallas, where we're so fragmented, where just even the social cycles of where everybody lives is just so fragmented and spread apart. And that's just not in the city around us. That's in this church as well. And uh, so speak for a moment about those who might be saying, hey, I feel alone. Or who's in this with me? And and what can that look like here at Northway Church, uh, given the fragmented culture of isolation all around us?
2: Yeah, well, I feel like I know that we have done our best as a next-gen staff to create environments to try and connect those of you who are parents that feel like you're doing this alone. um, We have uh, Wednesday nights. We have Northway training going on and Compass Kids, and we want you to come and be a part of that. Uh, It's a little late this spring, but in the fall, think about what class you could be part of or how you could maybe serve with Compass Kids. And then uh, we also have our family discipleship retreat every fall. It's a great place to come and connect and meet other parents who are doing this and be equipped uh, to disciple your kids. Um, We would encourage you to think about gospel communities if you're not in one, to jump into a gospel community and join in on the mission of a group of people that are doing life and accountability, but also leaning into that evangelistic hospitality. Um, There's nothing like evangelistic hospitality, I feel like that can help you navigate discipling your kids because it, from it comes a lot of questions from your kids about how neighbors or unbelievers are living their life or what they say or what their kids say about God. And so um, all that to say, we want you to come and be a part of what we're doing here. And that looks like reorienting your schedule maybe, or setting aside some preferences, um, but we, we we are trying to create environments and opportunities for you to join others so that you're not doing this alone.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. There's this phrase that I heard uh, a couple months ago that just I, I can't uh, get away from, and it's do-it-yourself Christianity, and how um, that's just very much on the rise, especially in big cities and uh, I feel that uh, for us. I feel, not just in this conversation, I, I feel our fragmentation. And there are things that I'm really sim- uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, right? The cost of living around here is hard. Uh, there are questions with where we send our kids to school. Private schools are expensive. Yeah, I mean, and, and all of that, I just wanna dignify. And you think about, well, you know, maybe the best thing for me is to move, you know, 50 miles north, you know, to one town, one team, where everything just gets easier. And when you talk to my friends who live up there, um, you know, the kind of the inside joke is that everything's not easier, right? That there are just challenges that come with raising our kids in 2020. And so um, in the midst of that fragmentation, I feel like um, first of all, I want to say that we actually have numbers, right? And I'm like original gangster. I remember when it was like 22-year-olds, and then like if you saw a few gray hairs, you're like, wow. But we really have begun to slowly uh, bring in more families here who want to raise their kids in the city of Dallas. And I'll tell you, we have a really big dream that starts uh, that started generations ago with that three-story next-gen building that we're trying to rebuild, that 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 building would be filled with kids and it wouldn't just be us in our 20s going, hey, this is our spot before we figure out what's next, but rather Northway would say, this is the place where I want my kids to raise their kids. This is the place I want my children to get married. And I really believe that's possible. And I think that the Lord is starting to tether a number of families together in the middle of this beautiful ministry that we have Uh, to a lot of people who are more transient. And, um, but I I will say this, like as much as um, a strategy for our children is important, at the end of the day, I think the most significant thing in their life is actually you and what you're doing with your time and how you're modeling your life. Like if you want your son or daughter to love the church, then love the church with your life and don't just drop them off for the programming that we have. I think that will speak uh, beyond any kind of strategy that we come up with, but um, anyway, we're a family and that's, that's really good news, so.
1: Well, a lot more could be said here. A lot, a lot more conversations need to be said here, but this maybe is a good starting place for us to continue this trajectory moving forward. And so let me just say in, in recap, you know, that the value here that we see from scriptures that we're to be a people who play the long game. We just don't commit to this generation. We're thinking of the generation still yet to come. And God is a God of deliverance. He's a God of miracle, a God of redemption. And our job is to, to tell that story and to hand it down. And he is prescribed in scripture. That starts first and foremost in the home. You're, if you're a parent in here or a to-be parent, that's your number one mission field coming in for discipleship is in the home. And we've got to be faithful there and we've got resources there to help there. But we also know that the vast majority of the culture around us, many of us in this room, myself included, have come from broken homes where there were were no spiritual investments there. And in that capacity, it becomes the role of the church to pick up the baton and begin investing in those around us. And there are so many pathways and opportunities, both formally and informally here in and through the church to be involved. And it's got to be a team effort. So jump on those resources here this week in this email matt cassie thanks for your time and your wisdom A little hand for them jumping in this morning i'm going to pray for us and we'll continue here in our time of worship father thank you again just for the word that you've given us thank you that somebody came and shared the gospel with us and that god from the beginning of time this was your plan that you would set forth in motion that the next generation would be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting in the home, with the parents to their children, but God, certainly within your church of being the family away from family that can minister to those around us who so desperately need Jesus. So help us to be a faithful church to that end, God, to be a church who proclaims your might to the next generation so they can know you, they can set their hope in you, and they can walk in relational obedience with you so God, we pray this for, for your glory. We pray it for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand? We're gonna sing. We'll do communion on the back end here, but let's sing and worship here together.